Speaking of pronunciations, okay, just to get this out of the way, I'm pretty sure that it's Claire Denis, if you're going to be French about it. So I can't even indulge this bit anymore. It's not it's just a bit. every single it's episode <laughs> we're arguing about how to pronounce some crazy European name. I will not allow this to be the opening again. It, this is my fault because I messaged Mark and I was like, I'm not even going to say her name because I'm afraid I'm going to get berated for mispronunciation. I don't think our audience could could bear much more pronunciation talk in so few episodes. <laughs> Okay, so we need to just, just, let's just establish. Claire Denis is what you want to say, Mark? I'm going to pronounce it wrong, just out of spite. We're going to break Seth in this one, I can tell. So also, Claire Denis' most famous film, which looks like Beau Travail, but it looks like on Wikipedia, it's Beau Travage. Mark, you got to stop this. <laughs> I'm going to leave. So listen, that's what I'm, that's what I, that's what we, when I, when you hear me say Beau Travage, just know that's what I'm talking about. Okay, and uh, the director of Possession has crazy. Yeah, Yeah. Zulowski, I think, is fine. His first name has like a Z where there shouldn't be a Z, like (laughs) right by an R. I think maybe it's Andrej, maybe. These are all white people. I'm not worried about it. Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast island of misfit films, whether they be difficult, disgusting, or just misunderstood. I am Mark Dottavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today's topic is art house horror, featuring two films that might have been too gory and too extreme for the art film crowd, and too difficult, dare I say, pretentious for horror junkies. Those films are Andrzej Zulowski's 1981 psychological horror film, Possession, and Claire Denis' 2001 erotic or anti-erotic thriller, Trouble Every Day. We're on the island of misfit films. Yeah, you like we that? watch these gross <laughs> movies so you don't have to. So I want to start out here by introducing our very special guest, Amy Henserling, a good friend of ours from Letterboxd. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled and honored. Thank you for having me. I'm fairly certain I invited myself because (laughs) when you guys were on Twitter, I was like, oh, I'll be a guest speaker sometime. And here I am. So I appreciate it. There you are. That's how Seth got on the show. He just kind of elbowed his way in. I wandered in front of the laptop one day. Hi, Amy. So good to meet you. Oh, yes. And I didn't know Seth until now. So hello, Seth. Nice to meet you as well. We go all the way back to when we were having technical difficulties 20 minutes ago and Tony couldn't get it to work. Those were the good old days. It's a a long history. Yeah. And so, I mean, Amy and I, I think, started following each other on Letterboxd like about a year ago. Had lots of exchanges on there, but this is our first like face-to-face. This is very exciting. And I I am happy to be, I feel like this is almost a vehicle for like verification of identity because it's like, (laughs) oh, (laughs) we are real people named Amy and Mark and Seth and we exist and we're not just robots on Letterboxd. It's official. If you work for Letterboxd, please send us a check or we will release 
the names of the users that we were catfished by before, Amy? Yes, please. <laughs> Time for that letterbox money. Sponsor us, Letterboxd. We love you. For sure. Yeah, they were like our official sponsor for this episode. Truly, because I wouldn't be here at all. I wouldn't even know Mark existed without Letterboxd. The magic of Letterboxd. And I do want to mention also that Mark and I both really like Mike D'Angelo. I don't know if he's your favorite critic, Mark, but I'm pretty sure that's part of the reason we bonded was because we were so, we're both so familiar with his style and his rating system. Absolutely. Maybe that, I think that might've been what, what caused our first connection there. So Mike, if you're listening out there, we're coming for you next. Is he on Letterboxd? Is he a Letterboxd guy? He is actually. Is he the hippo that works for IndieWire? That's David Ehrlich. Yeah. He's one of the most popular people, although Mike has like 20,000 followers or something because he was one of the first like original online critics when the Internet was first starting. Oh, my God. Same. Yeah. And Seth, you would probably enjoy it. He has a uh, well, besides his Patreon, he has a blog called The Man Who Viewed Too Much and it's full of reviews like and lists back to like the 90s. So it's quite uh, expansive. Yeah, hopefully we've buttered him up enough now that we'll get him on someday. Oh, that'd be so cool. But, you know, pipe dreams. (laughs) All right, well, we're going to start off today uh, talking about Possession, which is a 1981 film by uh, Andrzej Zulowski. And I think this actually kind of goes back to our first episode, which was about Antichrist, in terms of some kind of a comparison. Both of these movies premiered at Cannes. They both won Best Actress for their lead actress, possibly for a great performance, but also just kind of like surviving through to the end of the movie because they, it really puts them through the ringers. And I think our topic for this particular episode is a little similar to what we talked about with Antichrist, too, because these are movies that really straddle the line between like art house cinema and extreme horror. And in the same way that Antichrist kind of does that, I think Possession and Trouble Every Day both have directors who aren't known for horror movies uh, and followed up some of their big successes by suddenly veering into one and alienating a lot of people on uh, both sides of the genre divide. Ladies being sexy and scary at the same time. Genre. Yeah, exactly. So I think these movies do have a lot in common, but uh, Zulowski is a good guy to start with because I haven't seen any of his other movies, but my understanding is that a few of them have some horror elements, but this is really the only one that you would have gone into the video store and found under the horror section. It's supposed to be awesome. I know, uh, I think it's like The Devil or something that's supposed to be really awesome. A bunch of his movies are supposed to be sweet. Yeah, and from what I gather, even though they kind of span genres, they're all in a similar register, which we'll talk about how that unfolds in Possession. But just to give a little bit of background on this, uh, like I said, it came out in 1981. And even though it premiered at Cannes, there was kind of a stretch there afterwards where it wasn't that available. I kind of got caught up in the whole UK video nasty uh, hysteria where there were movies that were being released in the VHS section and video stores without getting rated. And of course, they were afraid that this was going to be corrupting the youth. Uh, that these, you know, were falling under the youths (laughs) and that they might, you know, these may fall under their obscenity laws and possession was grouped in with these. Because the youths are going to sit through possession. They're really like having a great time. They're going to turn this off. Like, 
<laughs> the cool skateboarder kids that want to get corrupted aren't going to watch this movie. Yeah. Seth, I don't believe you in have them. little faith. Yeah, it's funny to see it on the same list as like Cannibal Holocaust and Faces of Death series. And uh, if anybody went in and then grabbed possession, I'm not sure they would have any idea what hit them. Well, they probably also got the shitty, isn't there like a 90-minute version that the U.S. got, at least initially? An 81-minute version. And this is a two-hour movie, so I don't I don't have any idea what an under-90-minute version of this would look like. Yeah, I found that one first, and I was like, oh, man. Not that, like... The added information really helps me understand what a lot of the like crazy elliptical narrative is doing. But like if I had any less, I'd be even more confused. I feel like it probably bit him in the ass. Yeah. And I think that when this was re-released last year, finally on 4K Blu-ray, it kind of brought a renewed interest about the film with it. I know that's the reason I ended up coming to my attention. And I first watched it like around Halloween time last year. And the 4K version is gorgeous and uh, really stunning. That's the one that you watch too, right, Amy? Yeah, and I actually did the same thing as you, oddly enough. I saw it as like part of my Spooktober watch list with my friend Joel, and I only knew about it because it it was on Metrograph. Like they were showing it in the theater and they had restored it. So yeah, I only heard of it because of the restoration. I had never heard of the movie at all. Prior. Same here. And even once I did hear about it, I was not at all prepared. Like, I missed the memo no. of what oh, this no. movie actually is like. Yeah, I felt like I started out, like, my first response to this movie was, like, are you sure, Mark? It just seemed like maybe it was, like, a ghost movie. Like, oh, no. maybe it wasn't all that fucking wild, but it's fucking wild. Whoa. <laughs> and I could barely handle some of this stuff. Oh, my. It's a lot. It's a bit much, as they say. A bit. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, because it, it comes at you right out the gate. And I suppose I should maybe do a little summary before we start getting too much into it. Oh, man, good luck. I don't, I don't know, man. I was hoping uh, you wouldn't ask me to do it. <laughs> I'll let you off the hook here. Unless, Amy, you did. You wanted to take a stab at it. This is spoilery territory, right? Like, oh, you yeah. guys just spoil stuff, right? right. Like, there's sure, no, sure. Okay, okay, yeah, so you don't. Uh, um. It is, I think, Adam Naiman, there was a critic who described it as a horror Kramer versus Kramer. Um, But I, (laughs) after rewatching it yesterday, I want to describe it as like Blue Valentine on crack. (laughs) That'll do. Wow, that's a good one. Yeah, because it does, it does remind me a lot of Blue Valentine in terms of the male uh, response to a breakup or like the end of the, the end of a marriage. But yeah, basically it's about a marriage that's on the rocks for reasons that we don't know. Um, you know, we think there is an affair, but like it's much deeper than that. Uh, and they have a poor child, Bob of all names, a blonde haired mm. child named Bob, <laughs> who is also kind of tormented <laughs> and uh it's crazy it's it's wild yeah. As Seth said. yeah from that point on it is pretty hard to give a synopsis because uh we could at least say that this takes place in west berlin that i think is kind of significant so we get lots of shots of the berlin wall and i know zulowski himself is polish and was like forced to leave poland because of film censorship and clashing with the the government there 
So you kind of have that as an undercurrent, but then we have this couple, which is played by uh, Isabel Aggiani, who uh, was the one who won Best Actress at Cannes. And then of all people, Sam Neill as her husband of Jurassic Park fame. And boy, we're far from Jurassic Park, though. This movie is why he doesn't want to have a family in Jurassic Park. Oh, good, good point. Why he doesn't like kids. He doesn't want to get involved anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he, he and he maintains his New Zealand accent in this as well. Yeah, I think that a lot of people watching this will this will be their first time even realizing that he's not like American and that he used to be so young. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, we even get a little little uh, Sam Neill nudity in this too. So for all you you Stan Neils out there, the good looking this fella. is the one to go for. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's kind of an it's kind of difficult to describe. Also, just because the movement in the film is almost its own character as well. Like the the camera is like stalking them the whole time. So I feel like there's a third party that's always present, even though there's just two central characters. Yeah, it feels like just about every aspect of the film is like haunted with its own ghost like there's nothing at a certain point there's like nothing to hold on to in this like there's no one you can trust even just like the basic narrative of the movie seems to be like haunted and yeah i like that you brought up the camera the camera seems like it's inhabited by a ghost and they are talking to the camera some of the time like they have like a weird relationship with the camera or who's behind it which you know i imagine maybe i I start to imagine there's just like a horrible gelatinous lovecraft monster behind the camera who's making all this happen and i just got pulled into this trap or something that's how i felt oh and i I think it's it's definitely relevant to bring up that this was written by zulowski in the wake of a contentious divorce and that is just splattered all over this movie because i'd say first at least 45 minutes there's not even a hint that this is a horror film and it's just a lot of i mean we sam neil is a psychotically jealous lover and um his wife isn't that hinged herself so we get a whole lot of confrontations between them and screaming matches And it's not until a little bit later that she kind of moves out and takes up residence in this strange building where, speaking of a Lovecraftian goo monster, uh, seems like she's kind of, I don't know, constructing or giving life to some kind of demon, kind of Hellraiser style, where it's a little more developed and closer to a being every time that we see it. And I'm really not sure I can say much more past that, you know, there's the murders and more contention between these two people, but it's just like one thing after another that just piles on and on and on and on of incidents. Yeah, it's it's actually, I think uh, part of the reason I like it so much is because it is a breakup movie at heart. It kind of reminds me in a way of how I felt about uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, where the horror that's kind of in the periphery and the exterior is a manifestation of their internal pain. And so it seems like it makes sense why it's so intense because the amount of feeling that they have is so intense. So it's just like a reflection of, of that, which I appreciate because it feels, it makes what they're going through 
horrifying visually, not just like pondering it. Sure. And I think if there's any through line to this movie, it's that there's some connection between the the grotesque horrors that are rising out of everything and between the uh, emotional turmoil that's going on between these two people. Exactly. Yeah. And I do definitely want to talk about how this starts out because the tone of this movie is so it jives right into these hysterical fights between Sam Neill and Isabel Avgiani. It, it's like if this movie could be measured like on a meter, it would be like a needle that starts out kind of in the red and then just gets further and further into the red as it goes, which, like you said, is a lot to take. Machine in. blows up. Yes. There's they have these just like circular uh, screaming matches with each other and they the trash a restaurant. There's a scene where he like slaps her over and over till she's bloody and she runs out on the street in a car or like a truck veers out of the way and a car falls off the back of the truck. It's just harnessed chaos. It is just harnessing and, and like the like who and what and like context seems to matter very little. And that continues throughout the movie. It, insert insert partner, insert partner, insert instigating issue. And you can like bring your own baggage to, I think like the sort of, Again, like experimental, like nonlinear cutting that goes on only helps you to just sort of bring your own like breakup baggage and romantic past to this. And also like it just mind, it makes it more about the raw feeling of like argument and disagreement rather than like it actually being about specific soap opera of it. Yeah. And I would also say it's a very good representation of how it feels to be dumped specifically like when you're the person who's being abandoned that like craziness where you're like who is he you know i have to know type of thing like can we please discuss this like that whole position that he's in i feel like they fleshed that out very well actually because that's a that's such a vulnerable position and by that time usually the person who's doing the leaving doesn't care to answer those questions because they they're already done. Right. Yeah. You're not going to get the closure you want. That's like how it almost always works. Like it's not, not ever, even in like the best situations, you're not going to totally get the outcome and like everything you want, because in that situation, it's by default that you're not going to get what you want. You are the one who said it didn't work. It broke whatever it was, you know? Yeah. And they amp that feeling up to like, yeah, this amp goes to 11. Yes. And it also goes to 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Yeah. yeah. It's very metal. It's, because, yeah, we never... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Very, very metal. <laughs> yeah. Every aspect of the plot and all the dialogue feels that it has to be, like, blunt force. Like, it is so wild how it goes out of its way to, like, make every scene just, like, too much. Almost to, like, an absurd level. Yeah. Like, you brought up David Lynch, like... a a lot of this, like the emotions don't feel real. And you sort of have to find, you you sort of find the movie's emotional reality as it goes along because it's not our reality. Uh, in the same way that David Lynch's worlds sort of have their own rules and have their own ideas about like how people act, but they're obviously not acting like anyone you've ever met, you know? And I think that's kind of the barrier to entry for this movie is how much, you can take of that and if you can get on to its wavelength 
because I know the when I the first time that I watched this last year, I was just not ready for what this was. And I had the benefit this time of being more prepared for it, I guess. But the first time I was just not expecting there to be this to be so over the top and kind of almost like in every scene, they're just trying to see who can out crazy the other, like who can push themselves further and further down the line. And you would be surprised at how much room there is still left to push, uh, you know, once that stuff starts. Right. Right. I didn't like this immediately. I, I had trouble with this like from the get go, like at the first like 10 to 15 minutes. Cause I, and I think I'm not alone. Like your first time watching this, I think is like a lot of you like, wait, did I miss something? Like, we're jumping right into the middle of an ar- like crazy argument. Like, wait, was there, what is happening? Like, who is in on what? And who is the one who is spirit-induced? Uh, who is the one who needs an exorcist? It becomes, like, very confusing and hard to know because you know, the floor keeps dropping out from underneath you. Yeah, and there's so much just histrionics there that if you're if you're not really willing to put yourself in there, you know, I could see somebody having a reaction to this that, you know, on one hand is like, whoa, this is like radical and overwhelming and tapping into something wild. And on the other hand, it could just be like, this is cacophony. This is just like exasperating. And that was where I landed the first time that I watched this. But I think that that's kind of the react kind of reaction that this movie is out to inspire in people. I usually see that people either think this is a masterpiece or just utter nonsense. Well, yeah, it's mean. It doesn't like you. Yeah. And I think there are, you know, parts of this that are, are so loud and over the top that it almost plays like a. I don't know, like a parody of like a John Cassavetes like relationship drama or something. Well, and I I read too that when they screened it last year, when Metrograph screened it, the audience was like dying laughing at some of the scenes that were very serious. Like the subway scene is not supposed to be funny, like LOL, like look at this. You know, it's it's supposed to be like deeply terrifying and like visceral. So I think either sometimes people laugh during horror movies because they're scared, but then also this could definitely go into territory where it's like people are laughing because it's so over the top and they can't, they can't connect the material with themselves. I'm glad you brought that up because that was on my mind of, I guess I didn't anticipate that being such a big part of this, that it is like, you don't know what to do with these like monologues, these like really silly, like on paper, at least monologues that they're throwing at each other, along with like really weird esoteric stuff, like talking about being like, do you know about God? Do you believe in God? God is inside me. And then also just jumping back to like, who is he? Does he fuck you better? You know, and all this, it's just all like, I don't know. Like, I, I could imagine some laughter going on and just the sort of in a mysterious laughter. Like it's a absurd sort of laughter, I think, that I found myself having at certain points of just like, what is this? Whoa. Like, just I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. And because the, the dialogue, you know, a lot of it is stilted, I think, in an intentional way. David Lynch is somebody who has evokes deliberately stilted performances and writing and stuff. And uh, this isn't 
presented exactly the same way because people they're really encouraged to push it as far and as loud as they can. But like Seth said, there's so much dialogue in this that I kept wanting to like, all right, I can pause this every other line and try to like dissect the import of everything they're saying. Or I I feel like I would have found that more frustrating than illuminating probably. But you're right. They'll just suddenly start being like, don't you believe in God? For me, God is a disease. Through the disease, we can reach God. Or like the the two sisters speech, that's to me, that stands out as the most, uh, like out of left field, like the faith and chance. Sisters of chance, sisters of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she's looking at the camera directly and saying it, that's where I'm like, okay, I'm not sure that we're supposed to rationally grasp this. Seems like it's just more atmospheric. It's her telling the story, right? And then she just starts talking to the camera, and then it jumps to her in the subway, right? The subway sequence happens in the middle of the story, which the subway sequence is basically her arriving at in this in a subway. We don't know why she's there. I don't know what she's doing, and she just basically explodes with emotion. And it's like I think it's almost. It's just a single take, I think. And she is just like oozing blood and who knows what else and screaming and thrashing around for like a whole minute and a half. And then they cut back to her finishing the story. I love how this thing is edited together. I think she's supposed to be having a miscarriage. Yes, I was about to tell Seth that. I don't know if he knew that. She had a miscarriage in that scene. Oh, oh, they did mention that. I was wondering if it had something to do with that or if it was just like, this is me manifesting my chaos. Well, this is what's going on in my head while I'm talking to the camera. She was getting rid of the creature's spawn demon thing. That's why she was in so much pain because it was oozing out of her. I think that's probably the most notorious scene in this movie. Like, if there's a touchstone scene, it's this subway scene because, you know, Ajiani just goes out there and I, I believe they did only two takes of it. Yes, two takes. Yeah, and that they mostly used the stuff from the first uh, and he just has her go just absolutely hysterical, just screaming and wailing and rolling around on the ground for, like Seth said, like minutes on end and- it's it's really like you don't see something like that that often that's that unhinged um, in a movie like this or any movie, really. And, at, you know, by the end, there's like blood and then like green and white goo, like oozing out from behind her like neck and her legs. And, you know, this is like an Oscar nominated actress who he, he got to just like roll around in the muck and shriek her head off. And that's kind of the movie in a nutshell, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, back to the uh, laughter and everything that you could that could be induced by this. It is because it is so like the chaos is gleeful. It almost feels like after a while uh, watching whether it's that scene, it it feels like a like like she's fucking rocking out or something. And then there's like other scenes where they're delivering these crazy lines and they're like smiling, like at and again at the camera quite often. So it is this. Again, very metal-ass thing that's like they are cannibal corpse and they are here to freak you out and they love doing it. Yeah, and she's also, I'm pretty sure that when the actress saw the final product, she like fainted and she had to get therapy and she was very, very traumatized when she saw 
the movie. Like it wasn't during the filmmaking that she kind of lost it. It was when she saw it because she just couldn't believe what it actually looked like in the end. You know, to kind of further elaborate on the things that might inspire laughter, there are some very specific things in this movie. And the first of them, I think, is Anna is Isabel Agiani's character's name. And she does end up having this lover named Heinrich. Uh, <laughs> who, yeah, I'm just, I'm just even mentioning him now because he's, I don't know, he's like this almost like touchy feely new age kind of guy who. He's a fancy boy. Yeah. He's a fancy boy. Yeah, but he can like fight though. Yes. Like he can, he's like, he's like in great shape and like, it's, <laughs> it's like <laughs> karate. Yes. He spends like part of the scene just like embracing Sam Neill, like holding his head and what, he'll get like right into his face to like talk to him almost like they're going to kiss. And then soon in the scene, he's like karate chopping the shit out of him. And it's just this, every time he shows up, I couldn't help but laugh. Like he always had some silly thing to say and this weird perspective on everything. Like he wants to be his buddy, yeah, but he also, you know, isn't afraid to kick his ass. He is (laughs) almost more bizarre than anyone else in the movie, quite frankly. Yeah, he's another thread where I'm like, there's so much emphasis on him, too. Like, we meet his mother at a certain point, and she's also, like, weird and mysterious. And, like, what is what is this person? Like, why is why are we so obsessed with him? Like, he's he's like a he feels like he's almost a part of this evil or maybe he doesn't know it, but he is. I don't even know. I think he represents everything that Sam Neill's character isn't. I mean, we don't really know what his job is, but it seems to be very practical and like methodical. Whereas this guy is like, what was that? The postcard? It was like, I've seen half of God's face and the other half is you. I mean, Sam Neill's character would never say something like that. So obviously she's like drawn to the poetic, crazy persona that her husband isn't. And I think that's kind of why he's there. It's like a contrast point. Sure. And it drives Sam crazy. Yeah. And I mean, since we get into spoilers by just the nature of this podcast, uh, Heinrich does, he ends up discovering that Anna has killed a few people and that she has this creature with her. She like stabs him. He ends up back with Sam Neill. And (laughs) there's another really gross scene where Sam Neill like clogs up a toilet so that it fills with water. He vomits into it. Then he knocks the guy out with the toilet like cap and drowns him in the toilet. He's just got to vomit into it first. (laughs) He can't just drown him in the toilet. He's going to make himself puke into it first. I am very much team Heinrich. And I think the last awesome thing that he does in this movie among many is that after getting stabbed like in what looks like a pretty serious spot to get stabbed in (laughs) by this demonic creature living in this 200-year-old brownstone. He just calls up Mark and like wants to meet him at the corner bar. And that's (laughs) instead of like riding his motorcycle to the hospital or something. So I just, I love Heinrich. I think I was so distracted by everything else in this movie that like next time I watch it, I am just going to focus on Heinrich. Yeah, Yeah, this is Heinrich's movie. (laughs) I know. I love him in hindsight. I gotta say, Mark, if I if I listened to you describing this movie, I would think that I would hate it. And I actually love this movie. So I don't know what kind of person I, I like. I'm listening to this and I'm like, but I I gave this five stars. I, I think 
<laughs> Great, but it sounds horrible. Where, there's the scene where Sam Neill is with his kid, Bob, and they're like playing with trucks and stuff on the ground. And he gets a call. I think it's from Heinrich's mother. He's like talking to her and stuff. And he is staring at the camera, still playing with the boy. And there's all this like scary buildup. And he's, it looks like he, he's like chasing the camera slowly. He's like crawling on the ground. Uh, and he's like, he just has this crazy look on his face. And then the, as, as if that wasn't scary enough. He like leaves and then like the little kid, the Bob gets up and he's like, mommy is calling me. And then the grocery lady comes in and faints. I tried to like rewatch that and like write everything that happened in that scene down. And I could, I, I it just, again, like you said, Amy, it sounds crazy. <laughs> like the actual events. <laughs> yeah. This is, it's, it sounds so much crazier than it actually is, which in itself is it. A triumph. We can make it sound <laughs> crazier than it is. Yeah, that's and that's why it's so hard to talk about because I could see somebody listening to this who hasn't seen the movie and being like, surely you guys could do a better job of really describing like what's happening here in the movie. But it really does seem to get incoherent at certain points that, it, you know, we haven't even touched on how at some point here, Sam Neill meets this teacher who looks exactly like his wife, but with green eyes. Yes, the doppelganger. Oh, man, we have so much work to do. And she becomes this big character. And she's played by the same actress. And at first I'm thinking, like, are we supposed to interpret her as just a lady who mysteriously looks like the wife? Is it actually the wife, like, in a wig or something, because that's what the her husband's character thinks when he first sees her, is he's like, what are you doing? And then he realizes it's not the same lady. And it, it, as far as the, like, funny parts of this, I was always, like, taken aback when she shows up, like, to visit them at home. And as far as we know, this is the first time that she's, like, you know, visited in person or, you know, at home in private with this student and his dad. And within a minute, she's, like, finishing the son's bath, like, bathing him. She puts him to bed, then starts doing the dishes, and then very quickly is in bed naked with Sam Neill. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, another damn thing that's that's going on in this movie. <laughs> My two cents on the doppelganger, because well, plural, because there is one at the end as well, um, is that they both represent what the other person wanted their significant other to be. So like the teacher is a lot more like domestic, like doing the dishes, giving Bob a bath. She's more maternal than Anna. Like I, I feel my inter- my take, which is not coming from anything except me. Like I haven't read about this, so I don't know. But my take was like, oh, this is like how relationships are, where you're always you always have an ideal in your head of of what would make the person easier to live with, and these doppelgangers kind of represent that like ideal state. Yeah, we should say that, or just that, what this monster thing that. The, that Anna keeps feeding and becoming more human, it turns into another Sam Neill, basically. Exactly. And then another twist on top of that is that in the end, Sam Neill ends up gunned down and, God, we'll get into that whole thing too, because did we mention he's also like a spy oh <laughs> who's God, being chased around like by s- government agents? <laughs> and I'm not making this up, <laughs> listeners. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
So what he was actually, I read that somewhere and I thought they were just making fun of the movie because it did feel like a spy movie out of it's nowhere. It's kept mysterious, but there's some kind of espionage mission he's returning from at the beginning that sounds like he might have assassinated oh somebody. God. And they're trying to get him back to do more assassinations, but he doesn't want to. He wants to spend time with his family. And then we forget any of that stuff happened until they show up again at the end, chasing him around just so we get like, we get a shootout and exploding cars and like a motorcycle crash. <laughs> and that was just my roundabout way of getting to the part where both Samuel and his wife end up dead in a very dramatic, bloody way. And they're both, I guess the his doppelganger goes home to the female doppelganger. Like they're going to then just yes. take over. And the little kid is very freaked out when the male doppelganger shows up and is just runs around the house yelling, don't open the door, don't open it, don't open it, don't open it. Poor Jumps Bob. into a bathtub and floats on his face for a while. Uh, and the movie basically ends with like this close-up on Anna's like face where she's like about to... Or not Anna. Oh, right. The, but uh, other, Anna too. 2.0. The teacher with the long hair. Yeah, and that's kind of what this movie operates on. Like it keeps... Th- it, keeps throwing on all of these symbols and uh, ambiguities just on top one after the other after the other from the shots of the Berlin Wall, which you would imagine would carry some kind of thematic significance. You have the doppelgangers, you have the monster, you have all the spy stuff. Uh, There's a scene where she's like teaching ballet or something and some girl is doing a stretch and like wailing into the camera in pain. Oh, that was horrible. Seth is so amazed that there's more to unpack. <laughs> I, I, it's like, I, I think my brain was trying to bury some of this stuff. It was just like, I, you can't, we'll get to this eventually in therapy. By the way, still haven't even touched on the sex scene with the squid, the squid demon monster. Thank you, Mark. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That seemed extremely normal <laughs> to me at that point. You're just like, at last, we're getting this out of the way. Yeah, Sam mm. Neill is... If if you think that's if you think that's normal, then you know you're in like a crazy film. <laughs> yeah. If you're like ah, all right, yeah this this feels this feels inevitable. Well, one thing that the movie did that I really uh, kind of ended up appreciating, uh, you know, this movie is otherwise very like it seems like it's going to be this like relationship drama, obviously, and the. Uh, affair at first is presented like it's sort of the thing at the center of this which obviously it ends up not being but right in the opening credits they have a guy's name that's like special effects for the creature yes and you're like okay so there's gonna be a creature yes and every time the movie like escalated it's like sort of ominous tone i was like oh boy are we about to see the the creature (laughs) and so when you finally do see the creature the the payoff uh in that scene to me was was immense and it's a i think it's a pretty well done like makeup effect it's really scary whatever is going on yeah when it just slowly rises up in bed i love the creature stuff i really think that my favorite like the best way that i can appreciate this movie is when it leans into the really crazy horror stuff and the just bloodier and more disgusting that it gets and the way this creature keeps growing and evolving and mutating and again going in ending up in that scene where Sam Neill is watching. And sorry, Sam, for using just your name instead of your character's name this whole time. But I, all I see is Sam Neill, uh, who's go. It's, I don't know. There must be some sort of crazy, like cuckold fantasy out there where a guy just wants to see like his 
yeah. wife uh-huh. having yeah. sex with this crazy, like, tentacled monster. Yeah, it's a cool porno. And, uh, and she's, like, almost, like, she just, it's like, that's all she says. She just looks at him straight in the eyes and it's, like, almost. I was, like. Oh, yeah. And then the, you haven't even talked about the music, Mark. That music, like, the score blaring when he, when he's watching this happen is intense. Yeah, I love the score because it does remind me of like a goblin score. Exactly, like I'm watching, but it's it almost like makes it feel like oh, you're watching. It reminds me that I'm watching a horror movie, and a lot of the scenes where I'm like, "What kind kind of movie is this?" And then there's like this goblin sounding synthesizer, and I'm like, oh, "But what is?" This? It's like it makes it even more confusing for me, and I love it. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny is I'm pretty sure the 81 minute version doesn't cut out all of the gross stuff. It actually cuts out a lot of the wild relationship and ambiguous stuff. That's what I figured. Oh, interesting. It just distills it down to the like horror things, which I actually would be really interested just to see what that looks like. And maybe that's just because those are the kind of the only parts of the movie where I felt like, okay, I'm actually like appreciating the weirdness and the depravity here as opposed to being kind of confused with a lot of the other stuff. And it is, it's really weird to think about watching something that just cuts it down to like the genre elements. In the end, I'm not sure that I really connected with anything. It's more of a movie that I do stand, stand back and just kind of see in awe of like, it's wild that this was put together, that people at Cannes watched this, that Isabel Agiani is, is shrieking on the floor for minutes on end. Um, you know, I, I kind of admire and appreciate that kind of stuff without it actually really tapping into anything for me personally. And maybe that's just because this isn't the kind of like relationship that I recognize or um, I don't know. It, I think the overload kind of got to me with this one. So I was a little more sympathetic to it this time. I didn't hate sitting through it or anything. But yeah, in the end, I think maybe the the incoherence of it kind of kept me at more of a distance. But I, I think this is really great, especially that we had Amy on for this particular episode, because, you know, I feel like you're in that group, you know, that that kind of cult that's built behind this that are real, like, true believers in this movie, right? And you are not alone at all in that. And, and I'm not, um, like, I don't like movies like this. It's actually very surprising to me that I resonate so much with it, because I normally would actively avoid something like this. So it's even more like props to the film itself because this is not my cup of tea. Yeah, because I remember actually, I think I watched this on Letterboxd and logged it before you did. And when I saw your review pop up, I thought like, oh man, I thought she was going to like hate this movie. (laughs) Hate it. Uh Yeah, and a lot of people did. (laughs) They were like, oh, you're going to hate this. And I was like, five stars, like spectacular. Uh Like, and I... I even think that on a rewatch yesterday. You learn something about yourself through some movies. Can you like, I mean, can you distill that down really to why this like resonates so much or what maybe what separates this from the other movies that you found like disturbing? Was it that this, this had more of like an emotional truth to it than those movies? I think it's what Seth and I were saying earlier. I can relate to feeling very out of control after someone leaves you and that, and that like, 
that feeling I just think is so honest. And even though it's over the top, when you're going through a breakup, you feel crazy. I think it encapsulated an emotion very well that I haven't seen done that precisely and like just balls to the wall. I also just admire how it like just doesn't give a shit about anybody's interpretation. This is what that guy wanted to make, I feel like. And I always respect when someone, when I feel like the final product is what they wanted. Yeah. And I would also, I I would agree with all that. And I would also add that what makes it work for me is not only that it seems like a pure vision, but it's a, whether you like what you're getting or not, you're being given a lot. You're being like, it's maximalist. And I appreciate that. Even if you don't like all the stuff that you're getting, like, and of course you wouldn't like all the stuff that you're getting thrown at. It's generous, uh, which I would say is uh, maybe my problem with our next movie. It's not generous enough uh, to warrant um, what the difficulty, I think. Uh, Jumping off that transition, then, we do like to ask at the end of uh, each discussion for each particular movie if you would unwatch the movie if you can. And usually the answer seems pretty clear by the point here. So I'm not even sure if it's worth asking, except I wouldn't unwatch it myself either but i assume you guys are you guys are fans right i rewatched right it. not only would i not unwatch it i rewatched it <laughs> yeah i think i'll like it better next time and let me give a quick shout out to we didn't i didn't really find a place to squeeze this in but one of the parts that i am most entertained by this movie is that at some point sam neil hires the world's least conspicuous private detective ever <laughs> and <laughs> there's like these scenes of Anna walking around completely deserted, empty streets, and this guy in a suit is running right behind her. <laughs> that was another one of those moments where I was just like, no, they can't be introducing a private detective thread to this movie. <laughs> they, they're not doing that. It's not possible. They are. And that, that detective is played by Carl During, who from uh, A Clock Crunch oh. that we oh, who is featured previously movie? on the podcast. Uh, he's the doctor. Oh, oh, okay. trying to save you from yourself. I love him. Oh, wow. So uh, our regular listeners will know that I am uh, the silent producer keeping the ship on course, and I do not weigh in on the question of whether I would watch or unwatch a movie, and that is not going to change today. But I do want to say that my dog hated <laughs> this movie deeply, and it was the 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 volume fluctuations were particularly chaotic and is probably the loudest movie I've ever played in my living room. And Baxter, Baxter would unwatch this movie if he, if he were here. Sorry, Baxter. Baxter. So would Bob. Yeah. Yeah. Bob would drown himself in his bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) Bob and Baxter, same page. Can I uh, pause for one moment? Yeah. I I think I'm hearing the dog yipping. I want to make sure he's okay. Man, dogs do not like this movie. (laughs) Dogs hate this movie. They don't even like hearing us talk about it. So our next film is uh, by another art house director, a very well-known one is, you know, in the independent film community, which is Claire Denis. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with all the rest of her work, but she has a lot of notable movies. I think probably her most uh, famous or well-known one is Beau Travage, which I'm just going to go with that as a pronunciation. That's what Wikipedia says. 
Fuck the Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> but on top of that, there's like uh, U.S. Go Home, 35 Shots of Rum, uh, White Material, High Life. Um, people, I don't know, into independent film have probably encountered at least one of those at this point. So, but where are you guys coming from? Because I've actually only seen a few of her movies, although Beau Trimbage is one. Uh, and I know, Seth, you've seen that. Yeah, I really like that one. I think that's a beautiful movie. And I also like um, Let the Sun Shine In, I think it's called. That was a, that's a really interesting kind of non-linear take on romance. And I enjoy that one quite a bit. Uh, I've seen like four or five at this point and not liked any of them. Oh, you're a trooper. You keep trying. Yeah. It's like with Robert Altman, where I'm like hoping one day that I'll stumble upon one that actually does something. But th- but to be fair, this one was the worst. So Mark, congratulations. <laughs> I was going to say, this wasn't the one to turn you around. Yeah. <laughs> so Amy and I are actually agreed as, as far as not being fans of Beau Travage, even though pretty much everybody uh, is on Seth's side, loves that movie. Everyone is. And uh, I love the ending, but everything before that doesn't really work for me. But it does It does give a good sense of her general style, which focuses, it's very lyrical. It focuses a lot on texture and rhythm. Beau in particular, there's a lot of like bodies and movement that kind of just for its own sake becomes hypnotic or mesmerizing. So I can appreciate the, that, that is something that I guess I do like about Beau Travage is that they, there are sequences like that, that just on the visceral level, I think kind of work. Uh, although the stuff with the characters doesn't for me. She's a, she's a first and foremost, a very visual filmmaker, which is, you know, seems like an obvious thing to say about a filmmaker, but her in particular, like she's about like observing things. It's rarely about dialogue. It's rarely about even like, general scenes and sequences it's quite often yeah like what you were saying it's like if anything Beau Travage is about bodies and about watching these bodies do things yeah it's sensual and visceral and we get a little of that in trouble every day but it is kind of amusing that this was her follow-up to Beau Travage which was this big breakthrough that everyone uh you know loves except me and Amy and she follows it up with this horror movie, which, as far as I know, is the only one she's ever made. Thank God. Yeah, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> I think makes us a good companion with Possession because these were people who are known in, like, the art house crowd, and then suddenly they come around the corner with this disgusting uh, thing that's kind of playing off of other trends in horror movies at the time. So I know Trouble Every Day sometimes gets lumped in with that kind of new French extremity, like strain of horror movies that were very graphic and brutal. And that I guess that's mainly limited to two scenes in this movie, but- They're big scenes, wow. Yes. And I think that's the main juxtaposition here is that we have eroticism intercut with the carnage and the lines between the two. And I don't think this is as lyrically shot as any of the other movies that I've seen by her in general, but- there is some kind of a visual dichotomy, I think, that's that must have been her intention. Yeah, it, it also, like, it, the beginning of it especially, I was like, this looks like a student film. Like, the, the quality of it is not even close to her other movies that I've seen. Like, it's very, I don't know, it, like, it looks 
like astonishingly low budget, more so than any of the others. Yeah, I mean, the credits begin with Comic Sans. Comic Sans. Which this movie is not that old. It's It would still be like a weird thing to see, especially at an art movie. Something in Comic Sans opening up, especially something that yeah. is supposed to be disturbing in a horror movie. So in that, I think that's like my favorite part of the movie, honestly. A like gruesome film that starts with the Comic Sans. <laughs> Very radical. Actually, the opening is my favorite part because this has uh, music by Tindersticks. And there's like a theme song that opens the movie that's called Trouble Every Day, which I really liked and had like stuck in my head afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think this at least gets off to a promising start because, you know, there's not a lot to grab onto at the beginning. There's some pretty shots of like shimmering water and stuff. And you have this song playing. To my you see trouble every day. And like people making out in the back seat of a car. Yeah. Uh, very involved. And then the comic sans comes in your comic sans in your life. <laughs> it's like this was edited in paint. Where am I? What is real? And right from the get-go, I can see evidence of what Mark is talking about as far as even the, the stuff that we that I personally like about Claire is her camera work and her more flowing uh like more poetic eye for movement and bodies and things like that right from the get-go it's not a very interesting or like pretty looking there's not a lot lot going on with that scene of them making out they are just making out and that continues throughout the movie of these what in other movies of hers i would like look forward to like these sort of lingering like observations of just phenomena taking shape or whatever, or gestures, just watching for gestures sake or something like that. But it seems like even, even there, she's not bringing her usual, like a game. They're not like fitting in, uh, they don't announce themselves with much importance. And that's what really makes this drag in our uh, debatably, like the, the, the rough stuff in this movie is obviously rough, but that almost, it makes it it makes those scenes even more difficult because it feels like there's no I'm just being punished after being punished by being bored. Now I have to watch someone's face get mutilated mm-hmm. like after being really bored. Yep. Yeah, and I guess again I'll try I'll do my best to kind of try to summarize this because there's not much to the movie but it's you know largely a slow like reveal of how the characters are interconnected and exactly what everybody's motivations are. When it comes down to it, basically on one hand, we have Vincent Gallo uh, and his newlywed wife. Uh, I don't don't care what their names are. I'm just going to call him Vincent Gallo. And yeah, (laughs) Yeah, on on a honeymoon with his wife, but he is obviously distressed about something and very distant from her. And uh, is trying to get information about this doctor he used to work with because he was, I guess, fixated on yeah, his wife right. somehow. Feels right. And at the same time, we discover that these this other group of people that we've been seeing uh, is the doctor and his wife, but the wife is this kind of a feral sex maniac who, like, her husband keeps basically catching her having sex and then, I don't know, biting to death these guys. 
And he like keeps her locked in a room and is still in like a relationship with her, but he keeps having to like go bury the bodies for her and stuff. The things we do for love. Exactly. For some reason, Vincent Gallo is obsessed with getting back to this lady, although it's never made clear what kind of interaction they ever had in the past or what it was that drew him to her. And their paths do intersect at some point. But that's, I mean, that's like the kind of surface level thing going on here, right? Did I miss anything big? The things we do for love. That's the theme of the podcast this time. Well, and also, Mark, your recollection of this movie is making it sound way more interesting than it is, which is the actual opposite of your explaining <laughs> possession. Like, you're like, I'm like, oh, I want to see this movie that Mark is describing right now. And I'm like, no, I don't. It's terrible. You're making it sound way more appetizing. Appetizing is an ch- interesting choice of words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when you see Trouble Every Day, it's incredibly slow and kind of meaningless in a lot of senses. You don't connect with anyone. It's very different hearing about the plot than actually seeing how she does it. And it does. It's an, like the plot points, they like announce themselves like that. Like, oh, he's a scientist and like, He's interested in the brain and he's like, it, it sounds a lot more like a regular horror movie on paper. Like, but which as again, like, that's a good point that possession does not. And I'm like reading about possession and like, what is this stuff? What is going on? Yeah. And I could see somebody clicking on this movie, you know, on Shutter, which is where it's currently streaming at the time of this recording, at least. And you know, maybe they're throwing it on after they just finished like High Tension or Them or Wolf Creek or, you know, whatever, all those kind of string of gross movies that were coming out around the time. And really being like, whoa, what am I, is this, what is, this is not like, have this is not have the same approach as those movies. It may be in the same way that if they had put Possession on Shudder, it would probably get the same reaction just in the opposite way. In the opposite way. Because this is actually very slow and dull, whereas possession is like full throttle the whole time. They're really, they're really directly opposed in that sense. Yeah, and I don't know. I'll, I'll say this much: I, I don't think that I found it necessarily as like boring as you guys did, because I, I was at least intrigued for a while because we get such a slow drip of information of what exactly is going on and where is this all heading. It was more like once it finally got to the end and especially when it like cuts to black that it suddenly was revealed like, oh, there's nothing going on here. Mm -hmm. Like there's, it's just totally empty. Yep. And it's kind of depressing as you're realizing that you're right because it keeps on going. And it's like, it, it's a short film, runtime-wise, but it feels very long. It's like an hour and 37, and it felt really, really long to me. Yeah, I think you, you had some good faith there. I didn't with this one, I think. that I, I felt like immediately, like, I kind of knew what was, that it was not headed anywhere for me. And I was, I was right. But Vincent Gallo's in it. Just before you turn off the podcast, let me say that Vincent Gallo is in it. That is like the one little glimmering aspect of this that I get to look at his face. Um, Depends who you are, I guess. Yeah. I, I like his face. Uh, he's apparently like an, a kind of an awful dude, but I love him as an actor in like 
Arizona Dream and Buffalo 66. I think he's just, it's hard to look away. And he is very striking. But that's a double-edged sword for me, too, that it's like, boy, he's given nothing in this movie, like hardly anything, but just like, if anything, like a gross physical scene at the end. But before that, like, seems like any possible dialogue that he could have added a flair to was cut from this movie. A lot of the scenes feel vaguely improvised and, again, like similar to Possession, um, but not in an inspired way. In 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 more of like a these actors don't really even understand what the movie is about or like, like maybe they're still like figuring out what this scene is supposed to feel like anytime they are talking. Like there's, there's even like uses of like double takes, like using different takes of the same line in this one scene that really took me out of it, where he's talking to one of the doctors, like he's trying to ask questions about the scientist he was, whose wife he was like obsessed with. And she says like, one line and then it jumps to like the same line but just a different take and it just like just reminded me that they are kind of, I don't know this like this feeling that they're still trying to like figure out what the hell they're doing or something I don't know I was displeased that scene especially st- that stood out to me as as feeling really stilted and just almost bad and it does make me think that maybe the director also didn't know that this really does arrive kind of half-baked and it was not thought through enough. And it presents a lot of like potentially interesting dynamics. We have this feral sex cannibal and her husband. And so there should be something interesting between them and what their relationship is or between Vincent Gallo and the sex cannibal or between Vincent Gallo and her husband, who was the person he first knew, or between Vincent Gallo and his own wife, yet all of these are just kind of left hanging there. And they're not they're not uh, relatable because everything is so, there's so little dialogue that you can't even, it feels very inaccessible to try to get a grip on what their actual struggle is because they hardly talk. And the scene where where he's like uh, Vincent's talking with that with the other um, was it a scientist where she was being really weird with him yeah and and like he's like you know I wouldn't say I loved her or it was just a bizarre and I was like what what are we doing like what am I supposed to get from this I have no idea I couldn't tell you yeah the fact that he's a scientist or something is also an aspect that kind of makes it so that you can't identify. Yeah. It would be easier if he was more of a blank canvas, if he was more of an everyman. But like most, yeah, most of the characters, you either like don't get any information or the information you get is like, he's doing something with brains. And I'm like, what is... Such a lack of specificity. And it really, that's what bothers me is when it just feels so general that there's nothing. That's the only reason why it's dull for me is because I, I can't hold on to any narrative that I could feel. Yeah, and there's like there's a suggestion that Vincent Gallo has stolen this other doctor's work and that there's some sort of wild ideas about the brain that 
were just too out there for this outfit, but we never get any details about what that is. It just disappears after they have that conversation. And when we do get dialogue, you know, like in that one scene, it's very stilted. Or I, I remember like when we're introduced to Vincent Gallo's character and they're, he's flying with his wife in this plane and he's just sitting there and he goes, I'm happy. Are you happy? I'm happy. And I'm like, that's your, that's the, I think nobody talks like that, but also it seems like it's just there as a placeholder. Like, Hey, in this scene, we need to establish that he's saying he's happy. And that's like, as far as any of the dynamics or exchanges go in this movie. Yeah. It feels like there's not a lot in there making me want to stick it out with this movie. Like I'll admit this is maybe one of the most difficult movies we've ever done for me personally. I I was scrubbing. I'll admit it. I was just hitting that forward arrow every once in a oh, while and just to like skip oh. a couple seconds ahead. I I was. I didn't give a fuck. Like and I uh I don't know. I'll own up to that. Cardinal sin. I'm telling Claire. And I just I I just felt like I was uh in the end correct to do so. Justified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we should probably talk about then, I guess, the two big scenes in this movie, because if there's any reason that this... Talking about scrubbing? Talking about skipping ahead? Oh, <laughs> my God. I had to. I'm, I was... I can handle some gross shit. There was something about this particular gross shit. Yeah, and they. I think that in this movie, the that's the only reason it's in this podcast is because it is isolated to these two scenes. And one is basically where these two guys break into the doctor's house and... The sex uh, maniac is, you know, boarded up in there and they come across her and she, you know, starts seducing and having sex with one of them. And that's the, you know, first time I guess we get to see her whole modus operandi where she is, you know, starts having sex with them, but then she starts to like chew on their face. And it's not even totally clear to me everything that's happening. I want to say that she's like chews his his tongue off or yeah something? taking his skin and like feeling pieces of his skin and i i, I had to get out of there <laughs> yeah and it's like and there's like it's the sounds of it that are so that's why what makes it is like that's a great point hear the like the, the flapping of skin sound it was really the sound that got under my skin <laughs> And the screaming. And the screaming, yeah, just endless screaming. Mm. The screaming at the end really got, that's what I was like, okay, it's not even the visuals, it's the screaming. It's, it, it seemed very real. Yeah, well, Seth wimped out on that last scene. Wimped out. Yeah, I think that's part two of the gross stuff in this movie. Yeah, that's even worse. Oh, yeah, that's much worse. Vincent Gallo goes and he meets the wife, finally, that he's been trying to, he's been obsessed with. And he talks like right after she killed this guy, too. So she's covered in blood. The body is there. She's covered in blood. And he's like real turned on by this, which I kind of, you know, you kind of see coming in a sort of boring, drawn out way, in my opinion, that like he is also one of these like zombie people that loves to eat flesh. And that's like sexually exciting to this person because there's also like foreshadowing his girlfriend has like a bite mark on her arm that's clearly from him but yeah they meet she's bloody he loves it they love each other i don't know why they don't eat each other that's a little confusing that's really what i was waiting for insert scientific weird sci-fi lore um but then they proceed he leaves her doesn't eat her she doesn't eat him 
And then he goes and finds a maid who was, I guess, introduced earlier, like vaguely in that, like she walked into Vincent Gallo's hotel room at one point and didn't know he was there. And he said like, oh yeah, I'm in here. That was a good Vincent that Gallo, a good by impression. the way. Yes. Yeah. I'm just, I'm doing my best here. I'm doing my best. All right. I'm happy. Are you happy? I'm happy. I can't get my eyes to do what his <laughs> And by the way, he doesn't just leave her there. He kills her, right? Oh, yeah. You'd want to die, though. I mean, the no, the original, the wife that he finally meets up with, that he strangles oh, her. Meant- oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Oh, man. See, Brain's already trying to leave this one for therapy. Was anybody else baffled by that? Because I felt like the whole movie was building to these two getting together. And within like 30 seconds of them meeting, it seems like he strangles her to death and she lights on, gets caught on fire and then he just leaves. And it's like the whole thing was for nothing. And now we're like, oh, so that whole thread of the story is over, I guess. Yeah. And isn't there like a fire? Yeah. That was another thing that happened with this movie is like it ended and I couldn't remember most of it. (laughs) Yeah. Immediately after I was sitting there and I was like. Can I even remember one scene besides the last one? And it was actually difficult <laughs> to recall. Bizarre. Mm. Unprecedented, unwatchable. Yeah, and that's why I think it makes the final act feel so aimless after that because it just so unceremoniously disposes of this other character and then we're, what are we left with? Right. With yeah. Gallo finally cornering this maid that he's been watching the whole movie. Okay, maybe something interesting will happen there. But then what happens, Seth? He, like, walks in on her getting changed, and she sort of is, like, kind of seems like she's into it for a second. And then he gets very grabby and forceful, and she clearly doesn't want it and is trying to escape. And that's when the biting starts, and it's it it's uh, bad. turns into a rape-slash-eat-the-person scene, which... Uh, you know, the second I caught a whiff of that, I kind of hightailed it uh, with my skip button. I cheated. I cheated real bad with this one. So I was watching this movie alone the whole time, and my partner came downstairs and went like to the fridge. And I swear, it's only like 20 seconds on screen. I mean, you guys know the shot that I'm thinking mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. What, during this. It's another, you know, oral sex gone bad kind of thing calling back to Antichrist, I guess. And that was the only moment that he walked by and looked at the screen and went, oh! That is the only appropriate response. <laughs> and I was like, you could... And that how it goes. You could have walked by any other time, any other time the whole movie. Excellent. Uh, everyone walks in at the wrong time. <laughs> That's just the way that it is. Yeah. Yeah, and then it ends. And you're like, thank you. Yeah, he just goes back to his wife, takes a shower, and he's like... Uh, I want to go home and then cut to black. So even this shocking, you know, scene that happens, it seems like the whole movie's been building to this point too. Like, oh, what's finally going to happen? And it's nothing surprising at all. It's exactly what you would expect. Oh, it's it's him acting out the fantasy that you see in the very first scene that he's introduced in. He he has like a little flash to someone covered in blood that makes it obvious that that's kind of what he's into. And that's it. And there's a vague moment at the end where they like 
we see him washing the blood off in the shower and like, oh, oh, better get the, sh- the blood off before my girlfriend gets in and sees it. And he like gets it all off and he hugs the girlfriend and that's the final scene. And there is like a li- like the final shot is her looking up with like these kind of stunned eyes, which sort of has this the end question mark kind of thing from a stupid like horror movie. But even, and, and for a second, maybe like you can try and piece together, like, is this movie that's trying to say something about taking that bad guy back, taking that partner back that you shouldn't be with or something? And it just anytime I try and find things like that that are in something like Possession, which are like, OK, yeah, crazy shit is happening. But within the crazy shit is like uh, ongoing monologue about relationships and uh, dysfunction and things like that. And anytime I try and do that with this movie, it kind of falls apart. I'm with you, Seth. And I also think, I I feel like I read somewhere afterwards that part of the reason that the last scene was there was to juxtapose the woman scene where like she seduces the guy and he's completely willing and into it and then harms him. Whereas this one has a lot more of a rape, uh, connotation to it and it's like the difference between the sexes but i mean i didn't gather anything from it that i didn't read about afterwards i was like oh yeah this is not this movie did not do a great job of translating its underlying message uh, uh, like absent of reading about it afterwards yeah and even as a horror movie that's made by somebody who's so visually skilled it just seems strangely lacking like in atmosphere or yes. tension. Uh, shout out to Tinder Sticks, though. I still like their music. Yeah, I'd never listened to them. Uh, They're good. They're I good. guess I will not spitefully ignore them, but, you know, guilt by association, that's not fair. <laughs> what are we supposed to learn? What are we supposed to get from this? I don't know. I really, truly don't know. And I don't even remember it well enough to guess. It's like I was brainwashed as soon as it ended. I don't know. Just don't see it. That's all I have to say. So in a way, you already unwatched this mentally. Mentally. Yeah. <laughs> it's my body saving me from myself. <laughs> Are we unanimous on uh, wanting to unwatch this movie? Yes. Let's say it. One, one two, three. Unwatch. No. I um, didn't know what oh, we were going to say. I didn't know what you were going to say I'm there. with you. <laughs> yeah, we'll try it again next time. You got to prepare him for that, Seth. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. It's kind of funny, though, because I, I think that if we were going to put this onto some kind of a scale that I was most forgiving to this movie, as far as like, I didn't, I didn't start to like dislike it for longer than you guys did apparently. So do with that what you will. It was a record for me, I think. Yeah. It was so instantaneous. Me too, Seth. I was like, this is painful and I'm only doing this because I'm on the podcast, I, oh, yeah. I 100% would have turned it off. <laughs> if, if that just like expresses my level of commitment here. So Mark, you would unwatch this as well, ultimately, or no? I think so. Uh, just because it ends up being so fundamentally like hollow and meaningless. So it did kind of feel like a waste more than Possession did. Unanimous, unwatchable. We can break up with this movie. So yeah, speaking of new relationships, 
Oh, we are very, very happy to have welcomed Amy on to the podcast and uh, hopefully sometime in the future, maybe we can have you back because it was a really a blast and hopefully we can find something that's not too terrible, you know, that you could watch, but also not too boring. Trouble every other day. Hey, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been a great conversation. Thank you, guys. I am glad that I'm still in one piece. And from now on, if I see Vincent Gallo in anything, I will abruptly shut it down. Oh, man. Arizona dream, though. I don't know. And also check out Amy on Letterboxd. Amy Henserling. Yeah, I think think my username is like Amy Catherine K, actually. Even though that's an inside joke from a long time ago, but I just never changed it. So Amy Catherine K on Letterboxd. So if you guys had to pick, would you rather date one of the sex demons from Possession or one of the sex demons from Trouble Every Day? Ooh, wow. The one from Possession at least appears to give pleasure. The other one is, there's no pleasure. You're just in pain. Yes. I think, frankly, I have dated the sex demon from Possession. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Brush with celebrity. A few different ones, actually. Wow, Mark. Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpitti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.